We've been talking about, I've been talking about living in wholeness for a while, like 12 years. And, uh, but my last few messages, I've been talking about living in wholeness and, um, and talking about the fact that you're, that, that you're a spirit, a soul, and a body. And last time I spoke, I think it was probably three weeks ago, we talked about the fact that your soul, your spirit has needs. And, you know, we, we talked about the fact that we spend a lot of time trying to meet the needs of our spirit. Uh, you know, that we need the Bible, we need prayer, we need fasting, some of you. And they're just stuff that we learn. That, you know, we, go, we come to church week after week and we, we learn how to be spiritual. But, you know, we're, now we're learning how to live in wholeness. And I think that's really exciting the last several years, just learning how to live in wholeness, learning how the fact that the Lord actually loves the whole man. And Bill talked about today that we are a new creation, that, that literally, that your flesh loves God. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, when exhorting husbands to take care of their wives as they take care of their own flesh. David said, my soul and my flesh cry out for the living God. And so we're beginning to see that not only do we need to take care of our spirit, but we need to begin to take care of our soul. And so um, last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the fact that we need to learn to manage our appetite. We need to learn how to manage the appetites of our soul, that, that our soul has needs, like it needs significance, it needs attention, it needs affection, it needs love, and so on and so forth. And so, and the goal, one of the things that we talked about was the fact that if we ignore the, if we ignore the needs of our, of our soul, it'd be, it's just like if you, if you ignore the needs of your body. I mean, can you imagine jumping in a pool and you, you, you go underwater and you're drowning and someone's like, oh, that person just needs air. How rude. Just, they're just in the flesh again. Look at it, just trying to get their need met. I'm not helping them. And, and oftentimes, <laughs> you didn't get that, did you? But oftentimes, you, you know, when somebody's drowning, you jump in the pool to help them. And actually, if you're not careful, they'll take you with them. And, and you know, nobody in their right minds, you know, blames people for needing air. But oftentimes, we make fun of people when they're trying to get their soul need met. And we're like, they're just not spiritual. And we, we've, we've demeaned the soul to the place where we actually abuse our soul. Yet First John, John wrote this in First John. He said, Beloved, I pray that you would prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Beloved, I pray that you would prosper and be in good health even as your soul prospers. And so that we see that prosperity is not based, at least from John's um, verse there, that prosperity, the prosperity that John's talking about is not related directly to your soul, uh, to your spirit, but it's related, but it is related directly to your soul. That, that prosperity and health are directly related to how well your soul is doing. And so last, last time I shared, I've talked about the fact that your spirit is how many of you understand that you need to be led by the Spirit, not led by the soul? You need to be led by the Spirit. But your spirit needs to be leading your soul and your body. So that we're, the next time they, they write the book, God's Generals, 100 years from now or 50 years from now, they don't write about a bunch of people who burnt out, had nervous breakdowns, 
who ran off with other people because they were spiritually aware, but they were, but they were not aware of their soul or their body's need. And therefore, many of those people just burned out, broke down, and were destroyed out of not taking care of the other two dimensions of their being. Does that make sense? And so, anyway, we want to see us, we wanted to see us do a good job with our whole being, with everything God's given us. And so, um, I, I've been getting a lot of questions like people are like, I've been talking about the fact that we need to manage our appetite. So we need to manage our appetite for, um, for attention. We need to manage our appetite for affection. We need to manage our appetite for significance. Those things, you can't manage something you don't believe that you have. So first you need to know that you have it. That you actually, it's actually normal. It can be dysfunctional, but it typically becomes dysfunctional when you're not self-aware. When you don't realize, hey, I actually have a need here, and, and I, I walk into a crowd of people or into a group of people or with my friends, and I um, and I'm so need attention or I so need affection or I so need to feel loved or I so need to feel cared for, and the list could go on and on, that I suck all the energy out of the room because I don't manage my need. Does that make sense? And so um, I wanted to talk about tonight a little bit about how do, I, how do I manage myself? And I want to talk about managing the kingdom that's within you. Managing the kingdom that's within you. And I want to talk a little bit about your thought life. And I, I wrote this in the book, uh, Moral Revolution. I just want to read um, just a paragraph. Learning to cro- control your thoughts instead of allowing your thoughts to control you is probably the single greatest secret to, to successful living. I once observed a scene that illustrates what happens when you are controlled by your thoughts. I saw a young petite woman walking two dogs. The dogs were practically dragging her down the street, peeing on people's bushes and dumping on their yards while she tugged on the leashes, leashes trying to get them to stop. It still reminded me of the way that some people think. Their thoughts drag them through the streets of life, destroying the vegetation of their virtues and values because they've never subjected them to any kind of obedience training. And how many of you know that we need to bring every thought into obedience to Christ? And I think it's really important for, for us to realize, like, you actually had, you actually have control. It's, sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but you have control over what you think. You don't have to be controlled by your thoughts. You can control your thoughts. You understand that, that life flows from the heart, not from the head. So your heart can tell your head what to think. But sometimes, if you've not trained if you've not if you've not trained your mind or peter said it like this prepare your uh, uh, gird your mind for action peter says or romans paul writes in romans that our nine romans chapter uh, uh, 12 he says that our mind needs to be renewed by the washing the water of the word you, you know what i'm saying that we need to renew our minds if we if we don't take charge of what we think Pretty soon, we become a victim of our thought life. And our thought life begins to dictate what we do, how we feel, how we see the world, instead of my spirit man, my soul man being under the charge of God. Pretty soon, I'm under charge of bad thoughts, which become bad attitudes, which become bad behavior. How many of you get what I'm saying? So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, Bill quoted a verse today that was on my mind. You know, this is how important is it 
that we control our inner world, that we manage our inner world. And Jesus taught Matthew 18, verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and feet and to be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away from you. For it's better that you enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast in the fury of, of hell. And um, <laughs> wouldn't it be a bummer to, you know, go see a counselor and be like, you know, how are you doing, Johnny? It's like, man, I'm just having this real problem with lust. It's like, okay, um, did you do everything I asked you to do? Yeah. Which eye is it that you normally look with? It's my right one. Yeah, okay. You know, and you, you leave the counseling session with a patch over one eye and one, one arm, one hand gone, you know? Mom, you know, I went to the counselor today. What did he say? <laughs> a little extreme. I'm not sure anyone in our church has been wounded that badly by me, but. I think it's important to, to realize that Jesus was serious about taking control of what you think. That Jesus was saying, listen, this is how important it is. It would be better for you to not see and enter heaven than to not take charge of your inner world and inner hell. And so tonight I want to just talk a little bit about that. If you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, this is uh, some passages that we've talked about in the past. And Paul writes this, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Everybody say, not of the flesh. But they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Everybody say, fortresses. And we, um, and we are destroying speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're destroying speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive. Everybody say, every thought is a POW. Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I want to just begin by talking about how we think. First of all, say this with me. Not all my thoughts are my own. Not all my thoughts are my own. Say this. Don't believe all your thoughts. Okay, so here Paul talks about the fact that there are thoughts, speculations, and lofty things that become fortresses inside of people. Fortresses are fortified places. You can tell in your life where fortresses are growing. See, I think there are, there are fortresses, and if you will, there are castles. There are castles that protect truth, and there are evil fortresses that protect lies. And you know, have you ever talked to somebody, and you're just, you know, you, maybe you're having a casual conversation, and all of a sudden they bring up a certain subject, or you bring up a certain subject, and, and the conversation gets completely irrational? Maybe you're thinking, yeah, that's me. What's wrong with me? You have a fortress. They have a moat around, if you will, they have a moat around an idea. They have a moat around a philosophy. They have a moat around some sort of 
um, some sort of dysfunction that when you try to tell them the truth or show them the truth, suddenly the response isn't equal to your exposure of, of truth to them. And they begin to react. You know, um, I, I bet we, we probably all have things in our life where someone talks to us about a certain thing and it's painful. But Paul talked about fortresses and he said there are three, fort- three kinds of fortresses. He says there's thoughts, speculations, and lofty things. Thoughts are pretty obvious. Speculations. How many of you have ever built a case by yourself and had an argument with somebody who wasn't present? How many of you have ever had somebody like your your wife, your your son, your daughter gets is home comes home from school late and you know they're 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 an hour late coming home or two hours late and about the hour mark you you kind of like well I wonder what happened and at the, about the hour and a half mark you start thinking about the the last person you saw on the on the milk carton I don't know if we even have milk cartons anymore and you start thinking about you know, the last abduction sign you saw on the freeway and pretty soon, you know, two hours goes by and like you're actually picturing what if speculations is what if Do you notice that the what ifs are never positive. Like, have you ever thought about this? Like, like when somebody is late coming home, you never think, I bet they got interrupted because somebody at the bank had to have them sign a check for a million dollars. I bet that's why they're delayed. Because, because somebody wanted to give them money and it took time to process the forms. Um, they were, maybe they were on their way home and the boss decided to buy them a new car and they went to the dealership to get it. And that's why they're two hours late. How many have ever noticed that whenever you have a speculation, it's always negative? If the doctor said, I'm going to call you on Monday, we took some tests, I'm going to call you on Monday, and he doesn't call on Monday, you never think, well, there's nothing wrong. You think, oh my God, he doesn't have the courage to call me. <laughs> and if you call and then they say the doctor's busy, it validates the doctor who's going to give me the C word. And if he says, and if they call you and say the doctor wants to see you, you never think, well, he wants to validate the miracle I just got. You're like, oh my goodness, what's he going to tell me, right? Have you, have you ever noticed that speculations, for a few of you, maybe they're not, but for most of us, speculations are negative. We build cases about stuff. And then little Johnny walks in three hours late from school. When you already, you know, you already making funeral arrangements. You've called the police, the highway patrol. And by the way, if it's really a good speculation, they, they are missing somebody who was dressed like that this week. Like you described. And it just gets really weird. And then Johnny walks in to the house. And you, you're ready to kill Johnny. Like, he lived through the abduction. <laughs> but he's not going to live through your parenting. And you're like, where the heck have you been? What's going on? You're three hours late. You didn't even call. And, you know, about 15 minutes into looking into his eyes, you realize that as soon as you stop, he says, remember 
I had practice today for football. It's my first day of practice. I told you yesterday I wouldn't be home till late. Listen, listen, you call your mother when you're going to go to practice and when you're coming home, okay? It wasn't my fault I got crazy. How many of you have ever had something similar like that? You just blew something up so huge and something walked into your door and made you feel so stupid. Or have you ever had somebody send you an email that you could read like four different ways? And you're just like, you know what, they haven't talked to you for several days and you walk past them. I've had people tell me this. I walk right past you and say hi to you and you didn't say anything to me. I'm like, yeah, that's my normal demeanor. That's why I got in this business, pastoring people, because I really don't like people at all. And when you walked by and said hi, bitterness and, and, and hatred covered my ears and covered my eyes. And I did not want to say hello back to you because of the deep hatred I have for you. You think that's weird. You cannot believe any people tell, have said to me, I said, hi to you. They write me emails. They write me, send me cards with money in them. So I will respond. I do. When they send me money, I respond. Of course, that's a joke. I, it's not a joke that I get emails all the time. And I mean, like all the time, like a couple of months, like not every day, but... Like, I walked past you, you didn't say hi. Like, I emailed you and you didn't email me back. I'm like, I can't understand. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. My computer has viruses. I know, the last one I got, it caught from me. The last time my computer caught a virus, it's a Mac. It doesn't catch them from other electronic things. It catches them from me. My computer's like a, like a, it's a humanoid kind of thing. <laughs> the worm virus. My one computer caught the worm virus. Did I ever tell you that story? You want to hear this stupid? This is how stupid I am. I'm really revealing. You're not even going to want to hear any messages when I get done telling you how stupid I am. I won't, I'm not going to tell you. It's going to ruin my message. Okay, I will. I'll, I'll tell you. I got a brand new computer, and you know, I'm I'm quite a bit better now. I can actually even type sort of. Like I use all my fingers. I, I don't use them like all at once though. Like I'll use this one for a while. <laughs> it keeps you from carpal tunnel. Then I use this one. Then I use this one. <laughs> but I use them all. I even use my thumb once in a while. My, my grandkids can text better than I type. They're like, wow, how'd you get the left one to do that? But, uh, but the IT people, when they see me coming, like, they, even though I, they work for me, they run. They have speculations. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there are reasons why they have them, though. So I got a brand new computer, and Nancy, my secretary, um, said, you know, leave the computer with me, and I'll get it all set up. Because I turned it on, there wasn't anything on it. It said, it asked me for stuff. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. 
It's just stupid that you have a computer that doesn't, it's not all equipped when you get it. So, so I gave it to her that night, and the next morning I came in, and during, and that day I went home, and on the front page of the Reading Searchlight, it said, Worm Virus Infects Military Computers. I didn't actually read the article, it just said that on the top. I mean, it, his, anything IT, I don't read them, but it just had, Worm Virus Infects Military Computers. I don't know if you remember that, it was like 10 years ago. So, so I'm like, wow, I don't know what that means. What is a worm virus? Or how do computers get sick? And I don't even know that stuff. But <laughs> so I'm, I'm really excited. Like I got this brand new computer, and and uh, so I, I get in my office, and it's they have it. The IT department has got it all up for me, and I walk in, and on my screen is a big green worm going like this across my screen. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not joking. Big old green, a big old worm with a, two red eyes. About this big worm going like this all over my screen. So I called Damon. I said, dude, did you set up my computer? He said, yeah, I set it up yesterday for you. I said, dude, this thing's got the worm virus already. <laughs> I'm serious. He said, how do you know that? How do I know that? I'm not stupid. What do you mean, how do I know that? Damn, this stuff isn't hard. He said, I'll be right over. So he walks in my office, and about that time, Nancy hears me on the phone because her office used to be next to me. She goes, what are, you, what are you doing? I said, I called Damon. Look, I, that worm virus they were talking about, the military computers got. He's like, yeah. I said, my brand new computer got the worm virus. I haven't had the stupid thing one day. So she walks in my office just as Damon enters. And Damon's all, you know, he's like really laid back. And he's like, and, and you know, he's really patient with people who need it. He's like, what? Chris, what's the problem? I said, my, my, you know that military worm virus thing? He's like, yeah, I, yeah I, I read about that in the paper. I said, well, I didn't read it, but I saw the, the headline. I said, my computer got it already. He's standing behind me, and he's looking at the worm going around the computer screen. He goes, just like trying to not die. You know, and I joke with him all the time, but he could tell by the tone of my voice and look in my eyes that I'm feeling despair. So he's trying to not laugh, and he goes, are you talking about um, what's going on in the screen right there? And about that moment, I thought, I bet you that's not the worm virus. So I better laugh so he thinks I know. I go, um, well, that's what I was thinking. And he goes, he hits the, the you know, <laughs> one of the keys and, it, and it, it's the and it goes away. He looks at me and goes, it's the screensaver. <laughs> Turn around and walks out. I'm sure he was like, oh, my God. Our senior associate leader is a complete idiot. (laughs) 
The Lord uses the foolish things of the world. To confound, I spent ten minutes telling you a stupid story that has nothing to do with anything I want to talk about tonight. <laughs> it is amazing how you can build a case for something in your mind, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's what I was trying to teach you. You can see it on the headlines and be convinced that you got it. Or your computer catches stuff just from prophetic declarations negatively spoken over things. Stuff like that. You've got to be careful when you see stuff like that. I remember we used to, uh, the, the uh, studio used to also be the nursing mother's room on Sundays. And we didn't have a nursing mother's room, so... Um, Brian didn't go in there on Sundays. And there was a sign on the door, a big old red sign on the studio door. It said, stop nursing mothers only. (laughs) But it's the studio. So I I walked by there one day and, you know, it's everybody knows it's the studio and and I thought, I wonder if people actually know that that's the, the nursing mother. I mean, it says stop nursing mothers only. And, I, you know, I wondered if, you know, if some people thought we need to stop mothers from nursing. <laughs> or I wonder if they thought everyone else can go by. Listen, anyone else is welcome in here, but don't listen. You nursing mothers, you stop right here. Don't come in. <laughs> People read the Bible like that. They see a verse and don't even use. Well, we'll just won't say that. We'll just keep going. But did I tell you about the worm virus? <laughs> People read the Bible. See, if you don't know what's going on in that room, you can't determine what that sign means. You have to know what's going on in that room. You have to know that nursing mothers are in that room. Otherwise, that sign means something completely different. And it's amazing when you listen to the wrong spirit. What It's amazing what you can be convinced is going on in that room. And you can be the nursing mother and be offended. I've... And, you know, this is a metaphor. Are you, can you follow metaphors? You can be the nursing mother and be offended that they'll let everyone but nursing mothers in that room. When actually that room, is, that sign is an invitation to only you. It is amazing how things can get twisted when we let the enemy into our minds and we don't take our thoughts captive and when we don't give people the benefit of the doubt or we live in unforgiveness, or we live in jealousy, bitterness, whatever. And, and I know this by watching other people. <laughs> so speculations, what ifs. 
lofty things. A lofty thing is it means it means to be um, something that is is um, it means something that's 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 arrogant or prideful or makes God look small and the devil look big. How many of you have ever had a lofty thing? How many of you have ever had a molehill and you thought it into a mountain? That's a lofty thing. A lofty thing is when you have something small and you're convinced you got a bump on your arm that is probably a mosquito bite, but by the time you get to the doctor, you're convinced it's the beginning of melanoma. It's a lofty thing. It got bigger than God. Fear creates lofty things. Are you following me? The, what I'm getting at is like, it's important that we manage this inner world. Because if we don't manage this inner world, pretty soon it's managing us. Pretty soon it's telling us what to do. Pretty soon it's dogs dragging us down the street. And instead of us taking the dogs for a walk, the dog is taking us for a walk. The dog is determining where we go, what we think, how we behave, and ultimately how... what. You know, it ultimately undermines our destiny. Are you following me? And so, the first thing I want to say is this, is that you need to question reality. Write this down if you're taking notes. Question reality. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Actually, the word make there is actually a Greek word that means process. It doesn't mean you'll be instantly free, although oftentimes people are. But the word there is you'll know the truth, and the truth will take you through a process of freedom. Are you, are you with me? And the word truth there, that Jesus begins with, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. But the word truth there is not logos or rhema. In other words, he's not saying, if you know the Bible, you'll be free. How many know if that was true, the Pharisees would have been the freest people on the planet? He's saying, the word, the word, we, the word truth there is the word we get our word reality from. You'll know what's real, and that will make you free. You'll, you'll know what's real, and that will make you free. Why? Because if you let thoughts, speculations, and lofty things take, your, take over your life, pretty soon you're living in a world that feels real, it can taste real. It can sound real. But it's not real. And virtual reality has imprisoned a lot of people. There are people, you know, a, a great example. Have you ever talked to anyone who has bulimia or anorexia? It is, it, and, and listen, I only say this because it's an extreme example of what happens to all of us when we don't manage our inner world. I, you know, I have um, on several occasions counseled people with bulimia or anorexia, and they're just, you know, they're like 80 pounds. Beautiful, the, the people I have counseled all have been women. Beautiful women who are 20 pounds, 30 pounds underweight, and they look in the mirror and they see a fat person. They see a fat person. They're like skin and bones. And they will swear to you that they are overweight. What is that? It's virtual reality. It's like, it's, it, it's a lie, but it feels true. It feels so true that they are literally either throwing up or starving themselves to death 
And you could put a mirror right in front of them and say, what do you see? And they'll say, I see someone who's 30 pounds overweight. It's like, no, no, you're 30 pounds underweight. But when you don't manage your inner world, pretty soon, little by little, those thoughts start to take you over. And that thought, I'm fat. Or that, that thought, I'm ugly. Or that thought, nobody wants me, begins to, little by little, take over my inner life. And I begin to obsess over, I'm fat. Nobody wants me. That person said I'm ugly. Maybe someone made a joke and it got in there and it began to build a fortress. And now when somebody tries to tell you the truth, it's like, it, it's like rubber bullets just bounce off the walls of your castle. Someone says to you, you are not fat. You're actually way underweight. And it feels like a lie. It feels like a total lie. It is almost impossible to rationalize with somebody who's not... Who, let's see. I think this is important. Let me see if I can get this right. When I have a rational problem, you can, rational, you can rationalize with me and help me through it. Are you with me? If I say, hey, you know, I'm overdrawn $100 in my checkbook, and you go, hmm, no, listen, you... You messed, messed up on the subtraction here. You actually have $300 in checkbook. I, you can help me. That's a rational problem. But when I'm irrational, you can't rationalize me into the solution. If you've ever tried to rationalize somebody into a solution that's actually being created through a demonic spirit who's given them an irrational idea, they will be comforted for an hour or two and by the time you get done with them, and I've been one of those people, you go think that you have a tumor, and you go to the doctor, and you, they do a complete physical on you. I can tell you, there's people sitting here who know exactly what I'm talking about. And the doctor's report comes back, and they say, we can't find anything wrong with you. And for about a week, you're like, oh, that's awesome, I'm okay. But then another symptom comes up, and you're like, ah, oh, they just didn't do that one test. There's just that one thing. Why? Because a spirit has gotten inside and it's beginning to, if you will, it's beginning to destroy your yard. It's beginning to urinate on the vegetation of your mind. It's out of control. Uh, I thought that was pretty toned it down. I was going to say crap, but I thought that was really, that won't work. It probably would have been better if I... Did. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> First John four eighteen. You know, I'm trying to like clean up my act. It's it's not it's just not working. I think it's Saul's armor. So you're just crapping on people's yards. Does that feel more authentic? Okay. First John 4.18, there's no, am I going to say anything tonight that's going to be helpful at all? Did I tell you about the worm virus? First John 4.18, there's no fear in love, but say this, perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Let me read you this, Isaiah 54.14. In righteousness you will be established. 
You will be far from oppression. Listen to this. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear. In righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear. And from terror, and it will not come, for it will not come near you. Why will you be far from oppression? Because you will not fear. But what happens when you get afraid? Oppression comes close. You know, I think that angels and demons travel at the speed of thought. And I think that if you entertain speculations long enough, it's not, it's, it, it isn't, it's just, it doesn't take too long before you were the one thinking these bad thoughts, and now it feels like those thoughts actually, like you can't stop. Like, it's like sin, isn't it? Like, you do sin, and then pretty soon, it has you. Like, first you make the choice, and pretty soon it feels like there's an eight-lane freeway to bad choices. Like, I had to jump over a whole bunch of hurdles to get there, but now there's like an eight-lane freeway. Like, I have all kinds of reasons why I sleep with my girlfriend. But the first time I did it, I felt guilty. I felt convicted. I felt like, I'm not going to ever do that again. But you know, by the time I've, I've done that with three or four or five girls, pretty soon, I, I, I changed my belief system. So not only do I not feel convicted, I actually think it's the right thing to do. And I actually don't believe that, that verse in the Bible. And pretty soon I don't believe that one and that one and that one. And pretty soon I have to, I can't have a hell. And because the way I'm acting, I have to rationalize there's no hell because I've already jumped over so many hurdles to get to where I'm at today. And so I have to create, listen, this is just, this is, this is just the way it is. You can't live with deep conviction and not do something about it. So here's what happens. If you do something wrong, you even make a choice right here. I'm either going to what? Repent, which simply means I'm going to be sorry, I'm going to change my mind, and then I'm going to change my behavior, right? I'm going to change my mind, I'm going to change my attitude, and my behavior is going to change. I'm going to bring forth food repentance. If I don't change, if I don't change my mind, in other words, I feel convicted, and pretty soon I feel bad, and I, here's what happens. Because I feel bad, I'm wired for justice. I'm like God. You know why I like to watch movies? Like, for those of us who like to watch action movies, what's the first scene of any action movie? Cop movie. What do you see? Yeah. An injustice. Within 10 minutes of the movie, you see an injustice. What happens if you see that scene? Maybe you've watched that movie six times. Like, you know what's going to happen. But if you happen to walk in while someone's watching a movie you've seen over and over, and you happen to watch the scene where the injustice happens, the person's you know, killed, murdered, raped, whatever, something in you wants to stay and watch the rest of the movie, even though you know what's going to happen. Why? Because you're created like God. You were created to need justice. If you do something wrong and, in your life and you don't get punished, and you don't, if you don't get punished, you begin to punish yourself. You begin to figure out ways to sabotage your joy, to sabotage your health. Why do you think people get involved with, with you know, girls date guys who, who 
abuse them. And they stay in the relationship. Why? If you do something wrong, you feel like you need justice. And when someone punishes you, you hate to be punished, but you like the closure it brings. If you don't understand the cross, see, Jesus didn't just die for you. He died as you. When Jesus died on the cross, I was hidden in Christ. He didn't just die for me. He died as me. What I'm getting at is this. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all my punishment on the cross. If I don't understand what Jesus did on the cross for me, when I do something wrong, I'm trying to pay for, I'm doing what Judas did. What did Judas do when he was sorry for selling Jesus out? He went out and hung himself. That's the Judas spirit. He created his own redemption. Do you know why police officers you know, often know that they're going to catch a, even a, a criminal who's like a serial killer? Because they leave clues. You know why they leave clues? Because they want subconsciously to get caught because they were made in the image of God and they know justice needs to happen. You know what happens to children if they don't ever get disciplined? They wind down into punishing themselves. In a culture where they never get disciplined, they create, they sabotage their own well-being and they look for people to punish them because they've done things that deserve justice and they don't know about the cross. Are you following me? And so it's really important that we understand that when I do something wrong, I get to make a choice right here. The first choice, I could, the right choice is I come to Jesus and I say, I'm sorry. And I, I, I give way to that conviction and I let the Lord change my heart. And I say, I was wrong. Why don't we just practice that? This is great for the husbands. I was wrong. Yeah, I was wrong. Come on, husbands. Let's just, I'm saving your marriage right here. I was wrong. Now, husbands, maturity is when you can do it right after you've done the wrong thing. That's maturity. Okay, ladies, ladies, practice this. Even if you're not married, ladies, this will, this will help. This is marriage training. This is what I do. Much deeper than Danny's stuff. <laughs> Try this. Ladies, ready? I forgive you. Yeah. Not I forgive you, but I forgive you. Okay? Just saved your marriage right there, guys. Just, okay, so when you do something wrong, I was Wrong. I. It was me. It was wrong. And you have to say it sincerely, guys, or it messes everything up. You can't just say, "Fine, I was wrong." You know that. That. If you're gonna say it, if you're gonna practice, I was wrong. If you say it a lot, you have to change the tone. Like it was me who was wrong. I'm wrong again. Wow. Can you believe I did that again? Wrong. Wait. But the real point is, is that I get humble and I admit that I screwed up. I have to come to the place where I say, see, I, I, can't, I can't be sorry for something. People, I don't, I don't know where I'm going tonight. <laughs> I have this different notes and I feel like I'm supposed to go some other place. So here I go. I, there's a worm on here. It's infecting my, my message. People say I'm sorry, but they don't really believe they're wrong. If you say you're sorry and you don't believe you're wrong, you can't actually be forgiven 
for something you don't actually think you did. I don't mean they can't forgive you. I mean, you don't receive it. Like, you don't receive forgiveness for something you don't think you did wrong. And some people just don't have the courage to actually admit they were wrong. And know what happens if you don't admit you're wrong? You'll do it again. You know why? Because you didn't think you did it wrong the first time. Did you hear what I just said? Repeat. When you repeat sin, oftentimes it's because you've never actually humbled yourself enough to say, what I did was wrong. I'm sorry I was wrong. And then what happens is, is that because you can't actually live under conviction for long periods of time, you have to make up reasons why you're not wrong. So pretty soon, if my actions don't change, my belief system has to. Let me just say that again. If I don't change the actions that are creating conviction, I have to change the what, what I believe about my actions. So pretty soon, I'm embracing things that I would have never embraced before I created that action. Whether it's, you know, sexual immorality, or whether it's the way I behave towards somebody, or whether it's the way I talk, you know, whether it's like, it's like I, I get angry, or whether I get, you know, short or whatever, it's like pretty soon I have a reason why that's okay for me. Well, I'm Irish. And, well, that's why I have a temper. No, you have a temper because you're not controlling your inner world. Well, I love this woman. That's why we're going to get married anyway. That's why I'm sleeping with her. No, no, actually, you're making up excuses for the conviction that's in your life. Are you with me? I have um, struggled with this, with my thoughts a lot in different seasons. Does it kind of come in waves for you guys? Sometimes I feel like, woohoo, like Jesus and I. Jesus and I. <laughs> Be careful how we say that. I mean, we are. I just feel like I am just like so mature. And then other times I just can't even believe when I, I, I'm like, like I correct my five-year-old grandson for the stuff I'm thinking. And I have struggled with competition and jealousy my entire life. You know what jealousy is? Jealousy is, says, the father just has a little bit and if you get something, I can't get it. Like, if you got promoted, you just took away my promotion. Because there's not enough for both of us. If somebody complimented you, that means they didn't compliment me. It's like they just have enough for one of us, and I didn't get mine. Anyone else struggle with that? Just three of us. Awesome. How many of you struggle with denial? You know, the worst thing you can do when you're convicted is to create some kind of excuse why you behave like that. No, let's back up why you think like that. Because before it ever becomes an attitude, it starts with a thought, then it becomes an attitude, then it becomes an action, right? And some people are out here trying to change our action, and actually it has to do way back here. I believed a lie. I felt convicted. I didn't deal with it. I made up a reason why it's okay. I spiritualized my dysfunction. I made it their fault. It's like, well, I, you know what? I'm, the only reason I'm jealous is because da da da. They get all the credit for everything, and you know, it's all, 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 all. no one sees what I do. Da 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 da. 
And I have reasons why I feel jealous towards that person. If I just stop and realize that I'm playing into a scheme, the enemy is sucking me into a scheme where as long as he can convince me that this is helping me, he gets to build this evil fortress inside of my mind. And pretty soon, a few years go by, and you talk to me about this jealous thing you see in me, and now I have a moat with alligators around it. It is well protected. And those alligators are my pets. I feed them every day. Are you with me? And I'm trying to tell you that it's really important that we manage our inner world. That we manage it. Do you know, you say, well, I'm not sure how to manage it. It's not really that hard because when you have thoughts you're not supposed to have, we're talking way back here, thoughts, and if you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, He's convicting you of the thoughts. Like way back here. Like way back here, it's like, yeah, you don't feel guilty to sleeping with your girlfriend now. You don't feel guilty about taking that drug now. You don't feel guilty about doing that lying now. But way back here you did. Way back here you did. And the worst thing in the world that can happen is when you do something wrong and you no longer feel guilty for it. I've had many people come in my office and say, man, I feel so convicted. I, man, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I'm like, the fact you feel convicted tells me you're a Christian. The fact that you did something wrong and you feel bad for it tells me there's, there's life in you. What do I do? What's the conviction tell you to do? Oh, man, I can never do it. What, what the thoughts I'm having. Like what? I have to tell her I'm sorry. I can't, just can't do it. Yeah, that would be good. You know, if I tell her I'm sorry, she's going to use that against me next time we do something. Like, if I admit I was wrong, the next time we have a problem, she's going to bring up you were wrong last time. She's going to actually have the file on me that I admitted to. Yeah, that's true. She's going to have power over you. Pretty scary. So, I don't want to tell somebody I'm wrong. I'll just tell God. God, I'm so sorry I offended Joe. It's awesome, Chris. Leave your gift right here and go talk to Joe. I'm telling you, you're God. I mean, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd, but it's your brother who's offended. Oh, well, just can't you tell him? I mean, he prays. Just tell him Chris is sorry. It's it's it's. It's really true. I believe that what I'm saying is accurate. Matthew 5.23, we're, we're going to be done in just a few minutes. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. It's, it's really important that we clean up our messes with people by honestly admitting. Listen, I'm not, I, I, I know I've been choking a lot tonight. It's good to say you're sorry. 
it's more important that you actually know that you did something wrong and that you actually mean it. And some people are professional, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorryers. Like, they'll say they're sorry, they're, that they're sorry, and they don't want to talk at all about what it did to you. Because the pain of actually going through the process of what my action caused you or what my attitude did to you is too painful. So, like, I'm sorry. I just don't want to talk about it anymore. We're done. I'm sorry. And it's like, that's fine, but I need you to tell me what you're sorry for. Tell me what you're sorry for. I need the door closed. I don't just need you to tell me you're sorry. I need closure. I don't need to beat you with what you did, but I do need to know what you're sorry for. And, you know, I I think it's really important that we find closure with people. Jesus was really convinced that this is important. He said if you go to someone... If someone offends you and you go to them and they don't repent, he said, bring somebody else with them, with you. Now, I know you can make a rule out of this, like you're like, all right, you know, getting the elders together and we're, I, I, you know, fine. You know, if you think that's what Jesus meant literally, that's fine. And, and maybe he did. But the point is, is it's really, really, really important that you don't allow offense in your life. To me, that's the point. The point isn't, let's get the elders, let's get three friends, let's, you know, let's get a bunch of people together. The point is, Jesus is saying, you know, Peter's like, like, you know, what, how many times do I have to forgive people? Which I think it's hilarious that Peter thinks that. (laughs) That he has so many people that he has to forgive. I'm like, dude, you know, you are the most unaware bull in the china closet in the whole Bible. How many times do I have to forgive people? And, uh, you know, Jesus is like, he's like, seven times? Okay, I'll do it seven times. Jesus is like, no, seven times 70. And some of you are like, okay, seven times 70. I mean, you read the Bible like that. No, Jesus is saying, listen, you, you need to keep clean accounts with people. You can't live in bitterness. If you're worshiping and you remember that somebody has something against you or you have something against somebody, you're like, well, it only says it one way. Come on, can we not be ridiculous? Like, if you have a problem in your relationship with someone, it matters to God. Are you with me? If you have a problem in your relationship with somebody, it matters to God. Well, I went to them, and they wouldn't forgive me. I went to them, and they wouldn't repent. Okay, Jesus said, and Jesus is like, okay, Jesus, I tried. He's like, okay, I want you to take someone else with you. <sighs> okay, I'll bring my mother. I think the point is, like, this is really important that things don't get between us. That we don't allow ourselves to build cases against one another. Ephesians 4.26, Bill taught us this when we were young, taught Kathy and I this. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And I, I remember Bill actually taught, I don't know if Bill remembers this, but he taught it. May have taught this many times, but the time I remembered was in a men's meeting where we were used to have a men's group. I don't know if you remember this teaching this, but and he talked to the men about not going to bed mad. And he said, he said to us, you can get angry, but you can't go to bed mad. And, you know, if you go to bed angry, you wake up bitter. And I took that really literally like, okay. 
if Kathy and I, if Kathy's mad at me or I'm mad at her, we are not going to go to bed until we work this out. So sometimes it takes Kathy a long time to actually <laughs> realize that I was right. No, but the truth is, is that we, we had a 24-hour rule. I, I don't know if you want to call it a rule, but out that, we had a 24-hour principle where we tried to work out our stuff before the sun went down or as soon as possible. And if we couldn't work it out between us, actually, it was mostly 98% of the struggles we've always had in our marriage have been me. So if I can't, she can't get me to figure that out, when we were young, she'd say, I'm going to call Bill. If you don't. <laughs> I had two Bills in my life. I had Bill Johnson and I had Bill Derrybray. So it just depended on what sin I created in the family. <laughs> she would. I would be doing, I'm saying something stupid and she looked at me. She'd just listen to me and I'm like, <laughs> she'd say, uh, you know what? I'm going to give you about 10 minutes to work that out. And then I'm going to call Bill. And I'd be thinking, you know, talking to either one of the Bills was a lot harder than talking to her. So that's where I learned this secret, like, I'm sorry. I, um, one time we were in the kitchen and, and I, Kathy and I, Kathy did something I didn't like and I was really disrespectful to her. And to be honest, we really have had a great marriage. To be honest, we, it's just been recently that we haven't. Just <laughs> the way it came out was so bad. We have a great marriage. We have. 37 years, we've had a great marriage. That's the one area of my life that's been awesome. By the grace of God and Kathy. <laughs> if I would have married someone like me, we would not... Have a great marriage. But we were in the kitchen, and um, a couple our, our boys were in in the front room, which is right next to the kitchen. And uh, Kathy did something I didn't like, and I was just really rude to her. And, and about an hour passed, and I went in the bedroom. She was in the bedroom, and I said, I, "I'm really sorry. I, I, I'm so sorry. I talked to you like that. That was that was really wrong. Would you forgive me?" And she said, "I, I forgive you." I said, "Okay." And so. The, the day went on and it was no problem. And I went to bed that night and the Lord said, you, you, didn't, you didn't ask your boys to forgive you. They watched you treat your wife like that. And if they don't know that that's not okay, they'll do that with their women. So um, the next day, so that was late at night. It was, I was actually in bed. So the next day they were at school and after school was over, I have, we have four teenagers at the same time. And uh, I, I said, hey, I need you all four of you to come in the front room for a minute. And mom in there, and they're like, oh, dad's got a new message he wants to try out on us, you know. <laughs> Must have got a new Revy while he was sleeping last night. Here we go. We're going to be taste tested right here. So they're like, how long is this going to take? You know, they're all teenagers. It's just going to take a minute. Just, can you just come in the front room for just a minute? So so the, the two guys, my two boys and my two girls were in there, and, and, um, and they're all like, Totally like, you know, so I said, um, you know, yesterday I was, I was rude to your, to your mom and, and you guys were, were present and, I, and I, I asked her to forgive me. 
did I not? And she's like, yeah, you forgave me. Yeah, I just wanted you to know that I'm sorry. I should have never treated your mother like that. All right. Not it. (laughs) That's it. But I need you to forgive me for treating your mother like that. We forgive you. Wow, this is painless. I think a day or two went by, and one of my boys was in the kitchen talking to his mom, and I was, I was outside, and I walked in, and, he was, and as I walked in, he was just being really rude. And I walked in, and I said to, to him, I said, Hey, you do not have a right to talk to my wife like that. Do you understand me? And he looked up at me, and he said, You did two days ago. I said, yes, but you forgave me. You remember that? In the front room? And when you forgave me, you gave up your right to behave like that. Because forgiveness restores the standard. And he looked at me, he's like, like, I don't understand what you just said, but somehow, somehow you just told me that the Bible says I can't do what you did yesterday. <laughs> So he looked over his mom and he said, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have said that to you. She said, I forgive you. But, you know, as he walked out, I realized this, that if you don't understand that forgiveness restores the standard, then you can't lead people past the worst mistake you've ever made in your life. If you were immoral in school, and you, maybe you didn't know God and you were immoral, and you, have, you, you get married, you have kids, and they become teenagers, and you start to see that trait in their life, If you don't realize that when Jesus forgave you, he restored you to the pinnacle as if it never happened. How many understand forgiveness rewrites your history? Then if you don't realize that, then you have no confidence to say to your kids, hey, that behavior, I'm watching these attitudes, I'm really concerned about them. Because in your mind you have this, well, you did it, well, everybody does it, well, you know what, you're a hypocrite. You, this is the way you lived your life, and now you're not letting them live their life like that. And, and you know what, when that thing's going on in your mind, you just, need to say, say to, you just need to say to that demon, Jesus forgave me, and when he did, he restored me to the pinnacle. And now I repented. Repentance, restored to the pinnacle, the high place. And now I can lead as if I never failed. Let me say this. When people, when you say to someone, I forgive you, you have to tear up the case file. Forgiveness means that when you have a conflict with that person again, you can't bring up what you forgave. You can't bring it back and go, well, listen, this is the sixth time you did this. Like, no, no, no. You forgave me for all those times. That means that they're under the blood and no longer do they get to play into this encounter we're having today. Are you with me? Amen. Amen. You know, this is Christianity 101, but sometimes we just need to revisit. I don't know if you do. I do. I'm dealing with some stuff in my own heart. And I'm thinking, you know what? <laughs> the first year I, be, I, I received Jesus, when I was 18 years old, 1973, June of 1973, these issues of forgiveness, offense, working your stuff out with people, I was taught that by my mentor 
the first year I met Jesus. And I am 57 years old and dealing with the same things I learned the first year I received Jesus. And sometimes I think, for some of us that are older in the Lord, sometimes I think we just need to go back to kindergarten, (laughs) relearn the lessons that we learned at one time, and not think we know them just because we have them in our brain, and realize that we have wandered far from the simplicity of knowing Jesus. Sometimes things get so complicated. I'm like, it's actually about love and forgiveness. This isn't like very hard. It's like, you know, if we just forgive and we don't hold offenses and we love one another and we don't, we don't let the devil scare us and we don't, and we watch our thought life, you're pretty much going to have a pretty wonderful life. And if you don't have a wonderful life after all that, you're going to heaven anyway. Why don't you stand and let me pray for you? I don't know what to do about the worm virus thing. No, I think I give a lot of you hope. Like you're, you know, a lot of you are like, you know what? If that person is that stupid and he's up here leading us, you're either really scared, like you're never coming back, or it gives you hope that you can actually do something too. I said when Bill wrote his first book, everyone's like, amazing. When I wrote my first book, they go, miracle. Grab hands with the person next to you. I want to pray for you. If you have an offense in your life that you haven't dealt with, I want you to squeeze the hand of the person next to you, and they're going to pray for you. I mean it sincerely. They're going to pray for courage, and they're going to pray for wisdom for you. Hopefully you're not offended by the person next to you. I didn't think through that very well. If it's the person that, <laughs> if it is your husband or wife and they, they squeeze back really hard, you're like, I'm going to get this taken care of tonight. <laughs> Sun's already down. We need to run home. But I do want you to pray for the simplicity of knowing Jesus in the person on your left, in, on your left and right. I sincerely do. I want you to pray that we would come back to the simplicity of knowing Jesus. The things we learn the first few months we found Jesus. That we had to let go of our sins. That we had to honestly be, say, I, I, I'm a sinner. I actually need forgiveness. Those simple things that we did when, you know, I remember the day I received Jesus. You know why? You know what I remember the most? It felt like a thousand pounds came off of my shoulders. I, people say that all the time. Like, it feels like a thousand pounds came off my sh- uh, their shoulders. You know, like, say, I say, how do you feel? And they're like, I don't know, it feels like a thousand pounds came off my shoulders. It's, it's so strange, it actually felt physically, I didn't know the weight was on me until it got off me. So weird. But I remember, I can still remember sitting in the car with this man, and he prayed for me to receive Jesus. First time I received Jesus a few times. <laughs> like five people prayed, <laughs> prayed for me. But I mean, I really, really, this, this, this man led me to Christ. I, received, I asked Jesus to forgive me. He walked me through sins I was involved in. And when I confessed those things, it felt 
like a thousand pounds came off of me. I can still remember the feeling today. And to let those things get back in my life is ridiculous. But how easy they creep back in. How easy offense, jealousy, bitterness. Just thinking about it last night laying in bed. How easy I've let those things creep back into my life. Just slowly, little by little, making excuses instead of agreeing with conviction. It's so easy. And so I want you to pray for the person on your left and right that God would grant them grace. God, grant my brother, my sister, grace to forgive, to be forgiven, to manage their inner world towards health, towards wholeness. That the simplicity of knowing Jesus and loving people and loving Jesus, the simple things, we've made life so complex, the simple things of somebody hurt my feelings or somebody really did do something stupid and, and, and I just won't let go of it. Lord, I just pray right now for people who are holding offenses, unforgiveness, maybe jealousy, bitterness, hatred. I don't, I don't even know what it could be. Whatever it is, you know, I hate to put titles on it because you're like, well, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. It's like whatever it is you feel convicted of right now. Holy Spirit's in the room, and I feel there's a strong conviction. Don't, conviction is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It says there's life happening here. Something awesome's happening here. Relationships are being restored. And there's some of you in this room that you need, you just, you know, yeah, we want you to come and worship. Don't, I don't want to be ridiculous. But you really have something that, Somebody's got something against you. And, and, and maybe you're like, well, I'm not going to go to them. I didn't do anything wrong. It's like, but somebody has something against you. It's like, they think you did. Like, relationships are precious. Jesus is telling us, relationships are precious. Like, go to them once. Go to them twice. Take somebody. Do something. Don't make it casual. Don't be casual about relationships being broken. That's the point of the Gospels. Don't be casual about it. It's not just like, try once, it didn't work. Jesus is like, well, go try again. Find some help. Get a brother. Do what you can, as far as it has to do with you, to be at peace with all men. Lord, we just pray that over every person. We pray for peace in our homes. We pray for peace with our spouses, with our children, with our brothers, with our sisters, with our friends. In fact, in fact, the Bible says that a righteous man even makes his enemies to be at peace with him. God, we pray for supernatural forgiveness. That even our enemies would be at peace with us. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you very much. You can drop hands. Awesome.